Ephesians chapter 6, this is the last day in the book of Ephesians for us. Um, next week we have a very special guest preacher and then we're getting into Christmas. How many of you ready for Christmas? Yes, yes, two of you. You already have your Christmas tree up, don't you? And uh, we're getting ready for Christmas. So this is the last, this is our 15th week in the study of the book of Ephesians and uh, the, the last installment for us. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 20, and then we will pray. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Here we go. Are you ready? If you're ready, say jump. Here we go. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, this present darkness against spiritual forces and evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that, my, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for all these weeks we were able to study uh, your word in the book of Ephesians. I thank you for all we've absorbed and all we've been able to apply to our daily lives. I thank you for this passage which warns us of the spiritual battle we are in and equips us with what we need to fight. And I pray that all of us would be receptive to what you want to speak to us. I pray that you would guide my words today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, do you ever feel like, um, like you're in a battle? Does it ever feel like, like hell is breaking loose on you? Hasn't 2020 felt like that? <laughs> Isn't that like, to this year, the whole year has been like that. Hell's breaking loose, and it seems like when it can't get worse, oh wait, there's more. It's like an infomercial, a really bad one. Oh wait, there's more. And uh, we're just ready for this to be over and move on into something better, but maybe you feel like that. Sometimes you feel like, I can't catch a break, I just keep getting hit by this, and life gets more difficult. And Maybe you feel like that because you are in a battle. Um, and we must know how to fight 
this battle. I think one of the difficulties of the passage that we're in today is if you're like me, when you read this passage, what thoughts come to mind? Maybe a Sunday school class or, um, or for me, maybe Lord's Army. Um, you think of the, uh, these little plastic pieces of the armor of God that you can buy on Amazon that teach you the different pieces of the armor of God. And, and so, although all those things are, are great training tools, we can somehow miss the fact that this passage isn't for children. He, he's speaking to grown followers of Jesus. And so let's not look at this passage and say, that's a lesson for children. Let's look at it and say, how can this equip me to fight the very real battle that I find myself in every day? So, three points today. Many, many sub-points. But the three major ideas are this. Here's one. Be aware of the war. Be aware of the war. Look at these uh, verse 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. When he's pulling back the curtain to what's going on in life, to a very real spiritual reality that we're not just wrestling against the things that we see, that there's things that we don't see that are going on. C.S. Lewis said this, that when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. So, so sometimes there's this extreme. Some of you, um, you are overly interested in the demonic, in, in spiritual things. And you can blame everything on the devil. It's like, man, the devil blew up my engine this week. It's like, no, maybe you could have put some oil in your car. Maybe that would have done some help. Or, or man, man, uh, the devil, he, uh, he cut off my lights. I'm just being attacked by the devil. Well, maybe you should pay your power bill. Okay? Oh, man. Gas went up this week. Oh, the devil. Trying to keep me from having to pay my tithes. I get it. Come on, devil. It's like, no. Sometimes these are just things that are happening. This is just the world we live in. So, so some of you, you've overly emphasized things of the devil and uh, spend too much energy there. But others... You try to stay away from anything supernatural. And you want a material explanation for everything. And, um, and sometimes you have a hard time seeing the enemy at work behind the scenes. And so what he's going to say here is we shouldn't be overly concerned or, or infatuated with demonic things. But we also shouldn't ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. That we need to be aware of it. Tuesday, June 6, 1944, at 6.30 a.m., 5,000 ships carrying 160,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches in France. 
for the largest invasion in modern history, what we now know as D-Day. Some of the men who survived this invasion said that they remember steady exhortations being broadcast over the ship's intercom in the final minutes as the ships approached the French beaches. Here's some of the things that they remember being broadcast. Fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you've got any strength left, fight to save yourself. Here's another one. We may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. Another one says, this is it. Pick it up. Put it on. You've got a one-way ticket. And this is the end of the line. Over 2,500 Americans died on that day in a span of about, many in a span of about 15 minutes. As the boats reached the shores, um, disembarking soldiers literally had to crawl over bodies of other soldiers to get ashore. Images like that um, make us grateful for the men and women who have given their lives for the cause of our freedom. But the reason I share this story in history is to emphasize that as the men approached the beach at Normandy that day, there was no delusion about what they were walking into. None of them thought that they were going on an exotic vacation to the beaches of France. They knew that they were walking headfirst into an onslaught of the enemy who wanted nothing more than to destroy them. And what we see in this passage is that Paul pulls back the, per the curtain on life and shows us that we are in the middle of a battle no less stringent and the enemy is no less fierce. The tragedy, though, is that many of us have no idea that we're in a battle. We approach life as if we were on a vacation rather than a war. Like we're on a playground rather than a battleground. But we're not. And as much as you uh, and I might wish all day long it were, what doesn't change the fact is that we are in a battle. A real spiritual war. And unless we wake up to that, we'll probably end up like the casualties of that day. We've got to be aware of this war. How silly it would be to walk uh, into deed day with a beach towel and a rubber ducky floaty. Yet many times, that's how we approach the Christian life. Is that it's supposed to be easy and a vacation and life is nice and God is supposed to make my life better and things are supposed to get easier for me. We're in a real spiritual battle. And the first thing he says is be aware of this battle. So there's some other passages in Scripture that give us an idea, a glimpse into this spiritual realm, very real spiritual realm. We see in Daniel chapter 10, um, Daniel prays this prayer and this angel comes to respond to his prayer. And in Daniel 10, verse 5, 
I'm sorry, this is verse 12, but it's in 5 to 14 you see this scene. But in verse 12 he says, Then he said to me, so this angel has come and visited Daniel. So Daniel speaking, he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for uh, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and be humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. What he's saying is when you prayed, as soon as you prayed, the Lord heard it and He answered. Verse 13 says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, another angel, of one of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. You ever, you ever pray and you're like, did God hear me? Is He going to answer me? He's like, as soon as you prayed, God heard. He sent me to answer your prayer. I got caught up with the prince of Persia who opposed me. I had to call for backup so we could get through that there's a very real spiritual dimension that is affecting things in the world. We see a, a, another uh, circumstance in Second uh, Kings where the prophet Elisha, I just got to say for a moment, am I too loud? No? Okay, I just feel that way. Okay. In the prophet, the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings 6, he's surrounded um, by this army who wants to kill him. And he's there with his servant. And in, in, in 2 Kings 6, verse 15 says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So, so you have the prophet and his servant and the servants looking at the army that's surrounding them that's coming to kill them. And he's like, We're going down! Verse 16, And he said, the prophet, Elisha, says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than who is with them. And so you got to know the servant there is like, hey, buddy, it's me and you in this room. There's a bunch of them out there with weapons, and it's just me and you. What do you mean? Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what was going on in the spiritual realm that Elisha was clued into, that the servant was not clued into, was that there's actual and angel armies, chariots of fire, who were there to protect them. From this physical army. And then in verses uh, continuing, it talks about how Elisha prayed. Blind them. And they, blind, they, they, they blinded the opposing army. And they escaped. That there's things going on behind the scenes that are really affecting material, physical realities. We've got to be aware that there's more going on in life than what, what it appears. That, that, um, I think that scene with Elisha in 2 Kings gives us the idea that the spiritual realm is not far off. It's not like in another uh, heightened heaven or something or lower hell. The spiritual realm is actually 
more like among us in a dimension that we can't see. Now you're like, this is a weird church. (laughs) What did I just walk into? When are they going to bring out the snakes? You know, that comes at the end of the service. Okay, don't worry. Um, no, but these, this is just what we, if we believe the Bible is true, and this is, and, and although you might not have seen anything this extreme, maybe you felt the reality of a spiritual thing that was beyond uh, just what we knew in, in this world. 1 Peter 5.8 says, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it gives this picture of the enemy, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. A couple of things we learn from this passage. One, that uh, the devil is part of the cat family. I knew it. I always knew it. And... Um, I'm just kind of kidding. And then secondly, his job is to destroy you. And he's looking for every opportunity to devour you. And if we walk around like nothing's going on, we're going to be in real hurt. So he wants us to know about this battle because um, he wants us to be alert to the enemy's strategies. He says here, But on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This schemes, this word means methods. That's where we get our word method. Um, schemes, strategies, methods. He's not playing around. He's not playing solitaire in his office. He is scheming and strategizing and he uh, knows your weaknesses and he knows what bait to put on the hook to catch you. He's been doing this for thousands of years, studying humanity, learning what your weaknesses are, and it's even whenever you don't even quite understand where it is or why it is that you keep falling, He knows exactly what to do to get you to fall. So He wants us to be aware of this devil. Who is the devil? Satan in Hebrew means adversary. In the Greek, it means slanderer. He opposes. He accuses. Satan is called the devil only in the New Testament. Satan is the head of demons and minions. We see this in Job and Matthew verse four, chapter 4. He's the serpent in Genesis and 2 Corinthians and Revelation 12 and 20. He's Beelzebub in Matthew 10 and chapter 12, chapter 27, Luke 11. He's the ruler of this world. He's the lowercase g, God of this age. He's the evil one. He's the dragon that you see in Revelation 12, verse 9. So we see all these descriptions of this very real spiritual enemy that we encounter. And it's not necessarily like the devil himself. The devil is not omnipresent. He does not have the attributes of God. He is not all-knowing. And He's not everywhere. And so the reality that the devil himself is actually messing with you is probably pretty low. Uh, But he does have 
demons, uh, fallen angels who work for Him, who are designed to destroy the people of God. And, and so sometimes what you're struggling with, your uh, are lusts are not just lusts. Your weaknesses are not just weaknesses or personality conflicts. Sometimes it's actually demonic. And it's spiritual oppression. And so, he tells us about this because he wants us to be aware that we're in this battle and aware of our adversary. But then he also wants to drive us to greater dependency on God. This is a spiritual enemy, so we need supernatural power to fight him. Meaning we need to be dependent on God. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That I need the strength of the Lord to fight this battle. I don't look uh, in wrong places for my strength. Our strength is not in our uh, resources and our ability. Our strength is not how long I've been a Christian. Our strength is not uh, how much we know about the Bible. It's not how long you've been in ministry. Our strength comes from Jesus Christ and His mighty power. It says that finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So the strength that I need for this war is the strength of the Lord. And He goes on to to tell us to stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the enemies. He goes on to say that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. And then he goes on to stand therefore. You think he wants us to know that we should stand. The reason we stand is because we can have confidence that God has already won the war. That we already have victory. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 19, we hear about this victory. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and ends all. Verse 22 is critical. And he puts all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things the church. So what he's saying is um, Jesus conquered death and the grave. He's got the victory. He put all things under and then he gives that authority to us, the church. In Colossians 2.15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authority and put them under Put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He put them to shame. He's conquered it. He's removed their ultimate power. So what He says here is we're not urged to win. 
but to stand. We stand because Jesus has conquered. We don't need to take ground, we need to hold ground. We're standing from a place of victory. Stand firm. You can't escape this fight. There's no retreating to be done. Stand firm. There's only two places in the Christian life where it, where it tells us to flee from temptation. Uh, and that's the love of money and uh, sexual immorality. Those are the two places in the Bible where it tells us to flee. So when it comes to monies and honeys, it's okay to get out of town. When it comes to everything else, we're called to stand firm. <laughs> we're called to stand firm because you can't escape. All right, so this, we must be aware of the battle and be willing to stand in it. And then secondly is this, we must be equipped with the armor of God. He says in verse 14, i got to get back to chapter 6. I flipped over to chapter 1. He says in verse um, 14, Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Let's skip up to verse 13, actually. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all, stand firm. Well, let me just address this. Uh, what does he mean by evil day? What he means is um, he's talking about uh, the, the day from Jesus' ascension to heaven on is considered the last days, it's considered the evil days, and, um, but the way you can think of this is when all hell breaks loose on you. That's an evil day, isn't it? And so when all hell breaks loose on you, make sure you want to make sure you have the armor of God on so you can stand in the evil day whenever the evil day approaches you. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, uh, we think that he is he is in prison. He's probably chained to a Roman guard. And so he's probably looking at somebody as he's writing this who has this armor on and, and, and thinking about that. And a lot of times we put a lot of emphasis on this Roman armor. But the reality is, is that what's probably in his mind is the Old Testament armor of God. Because the Old Testament, there's all these pictures in the Old Testament of God or the Messiah as a warrior. We think of Jesus, oh, meek and mild, coming kind of through the, through the earth, and He was a humble servant, but He was a warrior, and when He returns, He's returning as a warrior with riding a horse with the sword coming out of His mouth, okay? And so we got to see that Hey, what if Jesus actually, when He was here and He looked humble, carpenter, servant, He was that? What if in the unseen realm He was in the form of a warrior? What if Jesus actually modeled to us what it looked like to put on the armor of God and to be a warrior? So what are some of these Old Testament pictures? Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. You can just listen if you want. Isaiah 11, verse 4 and 5. But with 
The righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We see hints at the gospel, the shoes of the gospel of peace who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says, Zion, your God reigns. Here's the main passage in Isaiah 57, verse 17. Speaking of the Messiah, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. So we see this picture of the Messiah is one who is suited up with the armor of God to go to war, to go to battle. And the same phrases that Paul is using in this armor of God are quotes from this Old Testament picture of the Messiah who's leading this battle. And so to put on the armor of God is to put on the Messiah Himself. It means to be identified with Him. To fight with His strength. Displaying His character. What he's saying here is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ should cover every part of your body. Every part of your life. Because where the Gospel has fortified you, Satan cannot attack you. So it's not all these other tools that we're reaching for for this battle. It's Jesus that we're reaching for for this battle. I want Him. I want His armor. I need His strength. And then it unpacks this armor. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Your belt uh, goes around your core. It holds all your weapons and the rest of your armor in place. Now, as far as a metaphor goes, um, this is really important because no one wants to go into battle with their pants down, right? So if you want to secure everything, you want to wrap yourself in the belt of truth. What does Paul mean by the belt of truth? Here's a couple of things. We always think of the belt of truth as a what? Um, but in Scripture, it's actually first a who. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. That the truth is a person. We see this also in, in um, Ephesians 4.21 where Paul summarizes it as the truth in Jesus. So what he's saying here is gird yourself up with Jesus. Make your identity in Christ center in your life. Truth. It's the first thing mentioned in the armor of God. Truth holds everything else together. Girding yourself in truth. Um... So it's a who, but then it is also a what. It's also a what. So it is, the truth is a person, Jesus, but 
the what of truth is God's opinion on any subject matter. So if Jesus is truth, that means truth is whatever he says about anything. If you want to find the truth, you go to what Jesus says. What does God say about it? How do you decide what is right and wrong? Do you decide by your feelings? Well, I feel like this is, might not be true for you, but it's true for me. Do you, feel, do, you, do you decide by popular opinion that this is what the majority of people feel is right and good and true? Is that how you decide? Do you decide what's true by the notification you get on that post that you saw that says fact checkers have decided this is not factual. It's not true. The ideology that says that truth is relative and you have your truth and I have my truth, truth is just unique to you, are also the same type of people who are saying, except for whenever your truth disagrees with my truth, then I just say that your truth is wrong. So I'm going to say false information included in this article. Beware your delicate minds can't decide for yourselves what is true. I'm kind of getting off. Maybe I should come back. How do you decide what is true? Whenever Satan's first attack on humans, you remember that in the garden? Things are perfect. They got everything they need. The snake, the enemy comes along, starts talking to Eve. What does he say? Did God really say? God really say you can't eat the tree? Does he really say that? He attacks the truth of the word of God. He begins to have you doubt it. He wants you to doubt it or neglect it. If, it, if, he, can, if he can accomplish one of those two things, either doubt it, it I don't know if it is even true. I don't know if God has my best in mind or neglect it. I don't even want any, I'm not even going to pay attention to it. Do you treat um, this truth like it's the life-saving truth you proclaim it to be? So we, we gird ourselves in the truth, in Jesus, but in the truth of Jesus, what is right and what is wrong. And then he goes on, and um, the breastplate of righteousness, fasten the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate um, guards the vital organs, and so it's a, a pretty crucial piece of armor. And um, we have, uh, so there's the debate on whether this is the imputed righteousness, gift righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He, Jesus, made Him, uh, I'm sorry, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So is this gift righteousness that... that that um, there's nothing we can do to earn this righteousness. It's not our own good doing, but it was given to us by the work of Jesus. Is this gift righteousness? Is that the breastplate of righteousness? If so, that would kind of make sense because you have, um, I heard uh, J.D. Greer give a 
give an illustration of this, how, uh, you know, those Roman breastplates, they have like the, the pecs and the abs all like carved into it. So no matter what's going on behind this thing, I could be jiggling behind this breastplate and I look like I got it together, right? And so the imputed, the gift righteousness is that He gives me His righteousness. And it's not about what I do. That is, that, that is it, sure. But then also there is this... Um, Living righteousness. Ephesians 4.1 tells us that uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so the first portion of, e of Ephesians tells us God has made you worthy with no uh, work of your own. That He did all the work. It's not a work of man so that anyone can boast, but it's a gift of God, this salvation that you have. But then he says in chapter 4, he says, but then walk in a manner worthy of that calling. He, he says, you're made worthy, now walk worthy. This is about obedience. This is about holiness. This is about right living. That um, bad habit that you know is sinful. That temptation that you can't say no to. When you live without righteousness, you're opening yourself up to an attack from the enemy. I think that's what he's getting at. That whenever we play with sin, I'm fond of saying, choose to sin, choose to suffer. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. That whenever you choose to live in a manner that is unrighteous, you're opening your vital organs spiritually up to attacks, to the arrows of the enemy, and it is the breastplate of righteousness that guards our soul. Let me ask it this way. If you knew a year from now that Satan was going to bring you down, what would be the thing that he uses to do it? What would he use in your life today to bring you down? Whatever that thing is, we need to repent of that. Put on the righteousness of God. The breastplate of righteousness. He goes on. Having fastened the belt of truth and the, having the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet having on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So these shoes, the readiness of the gospel of peace. He, what he's talking about is a... Um, Readiness to share the gospel. Readiness to share the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. And so he's saying part of the armor of God is being ready to share the gospel with anyone who you encounter. A readiness to share the gospel. And an eagerness a readiness, an eagerness to share the gospel. You have the doctor who has to go and report to his patient that they have cancer. The scans have come back. The doctor is dragging his feet to that room. Why does it take so long at the doctor? Because they're dragging their feet to the room. He's not eager to share this news. It's bad news. The other hand, the doctor says, uh, scans came back, they're clear. He's like, 
you're good. You're good. Okay. It's like there's a readiness, an eagerness. I recently got tested for COVID. They, you know, and I was negative. He came in, he gave me this. You're negative. Have a good day. See you later. You know, it was like there's an eagerness, a zeal, a readiness to go and share with people good news. We have the best news of all time. How come we're not ready and eager and zealous to share with people the good news, the gospel of peace? That you can have a peace with God and a peace of God in your life. What is peace? Peace. I wrote this down just this morning. Peace is an inner calm in outer chaos. Some people think that peace is when everything is going great. But biblical peace, the peace of God, is when everything around you is falling apart. You have an inner calm and an outer chaos. The world is crumbling, but somehow, inside, I'm okay. Because I know no matter what happens in this life, I am right with God. I am right with God. I have the peace with God. We're okay. And I have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Inner calm and outer chaos. This is the good news of the gospel. That He's come to bring peace. So how do we experience that peace? Trust God. Faith in God. Knowing God. The Spirit of God in you. People must believe on Jesus. How do they believe? Well, Romans tells us faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. So it takes somebody telling them. He says, how are they going to hear if no one tells them? You've got to tell people. You've got to be ready with the gospel of peace to bring the good news to people. Many of us like to leave this peace out. This is not my gifting. This is not what I'm called to do. I'm not called to share the gospel. I'm not an evangelist. We like to leave this piece out, but I want to remind you, just notice here, it says, put on the whole armor of God. This is a piece of it. Put it on. Be ready. Be zealous. Jesus said in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, He says, go and make disciples. In Mark's account, at the end of Mark, He says, go to all the nations and preach the gospel. It's this idea of get moving. You got some shoes on your feet. Get moving with the readiness of the gospel of peace. He continues. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This is the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the. When we think of a shield, we think of like these little shields, right? Like a, this big of a shield. That's not what he's talking about. The shields that they would have that would be in Paul's mind is a shield as big of a door. Okay, It's as big as a door. It's wrapped in leather. And they would oftentimes dip it in water to be able to extinguish these fiery darts that are coming from the enemy. This is a real thing. So you got this gigantic shield to uh, protect you. And he... This is from the, from the fiery darts of the evil one. The, the, the enemy is throwing these darts of you at you of accusation. Oh, look what you did. 
God can't forgive that. You're never, like these, these darts of accusation or these darts of doubt. I'm supposed to have this shield of faith, but is that really what, did God really, do I truly believe that? Darts of doubt. There's going to be a whole sermon about this next week. Darts of doubt. What do we do with the doubt in our life? Come back next week to find out. Darts of doubt or darts of accusation. When your faith, when you're being attacked by the enemy, your best defense is faith. And what is faith? Faith is believing God. That's what it is. I'm believing God. I'm believing God about this. So when the enemy says one thing, you say, no, well, I believe God says this. Well, what about this? No, I believe God on this subject matter. So Satan hurls at you, you're no good. You're nothing. You're pathetic. After you did what you did, you think God still loves you? You can never make a difference. God will never use you. Your marriage will always be bad. You're not a good parent. You'll always be sick. You'll ne you're never going to get out of debt hurls these darts at you. But boom, you put up your shield of faith and, uh, well, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Mm -mm. I am blessed coming in. I'm blessed going out. Greater is He who is in me than he who is in the world. God plans, has His plans are to prosper me and not to harm me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. My God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. He will never leave me nor forsake me. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know He's watching after me. We battle these darts with faith. We proclaim faith. We build our faith. We believe God, what God says, over what the enemy says. Uh, one of the things that they would do with these big shields, maybe you've seen movies like 300, and they like link these full big gigantic shields up together as a, as a team, and then they're able to move forward uh, as a team is extinguishing these darts to protect themselves. Like The idea here is that you're, you're better together, like we need one another, um, like we're, we're designed to do this together. We fight for each other and with each other. Um, Ecclesiastes 4 says a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. One observation of this armor of God is that there's nothing for your back. And some people say that's because there's no retreating. You're not going to be running anywhere. We're going to stand and move forward, okay? Um, but here's another way to think of it. There's nothing on your back because you're designed to have another brother or sister guarding your back. That these shields work. And some of you, you're struggling in this battle because you're trying to fight it alone. And we weren't meant to fight alone. We were meant to be together and to fight with each other. So get you someone. Get you someone. We're going to pray together. We're going to meet together. We're going to speak life and faith into one another. We're going to fight together. He goes on to the helmet of salvation. 
Take up the shield of faith, extinguishing the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Helmet guards your head, um, guards your mind, guards your brain. He uses this helmet of salvation in another passage, Paul does. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So that clarifies things. What is this helmet of salvation? It's a helmet guarding my mind with the hope of salvation. Um, this is uh, the idea of um, assurance of salvation. That's what's guarding my mind is my assurance that I am a child of God. That I am saved. That no matter what the enemy throws at me, I know that I'm in the hands of God. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That there's something that happens in your mind that needs to be renewed to set your mind on the hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Some people say this is the only offensive weapon. This seems like all the other armor is defensive in nature to protect you. This is the weapon that we're given to strike back. We see Jesus model this when he was tempted. He went into the wilderness for 40 days and uh, the enemy, the devil, tempted him personally. And in every chance, in every temptation, Jesus responded. Beautiful example to us. It is written. It is written. It is written. You know what he was doing? He was taking out the sword of the Spirit and just slicing. It's like, whoosh, slicing the enemy. <laughs> like he's defeated. He, it, 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 it hurts the enemy of God whenever you quote the word of God. This actually, the word here where he says, um, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He's not talking about the written word of God. The word here he's using is not the written word of God. It's not the logos which is what you see in John 1, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became God, and the Word was God. It's neither of those words. This word means the spoken Word of God. Isn't that interesting? That there's something that happens whenever we speak the Word of God to the attacks of the enemy that fight back. He's... Hebrews 12, 4.12, I mean... Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and joint, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So in one sense, the, <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. It like, whenever you read the Word, it like pierces you and begins to reveal things about you. But then also, in the case of Ephesians, it's a sword that pierces the enemy. He's defeated. Did you, 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 you I think of that, that scene in uh, 
what's that movie called? You know what it is. The guy, you know what it is, right? That's all I got to tell you, and you know what it is. It's this scene, it's one of these humorous movies, an old movie. He's going in, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Anyways, he's going in, and this knight is fighting this other dark knight, and he gets his arm chopped off, and he's like, well, it's nothing but a flesh wound. Monty Python in the Holy Grail. That's right. That's, no, it's just right there. So that's it. And you know it. And he's like getting sliced. And that's what happens when you preach the word. You know, you're, giving, you're, till, you're, you're preaching the word to the devil, and it's like knocking off his arm. Knocking, you know, knock, and then ultimately he gets down to like nothing. He's, gotten, he's just nubs there sitting there. And he's like, all right, all done. He's like, no, we're not done here. That's the devil. He's like disarmed. <laughs> he's chopped all to bits, but he's just not giving up. The word of God cuts him. I think the point here is that we need to know our word. We need to know our weapon. You ever see those videos? You ever, I'm sure, Nathan, you probably like to watch these videos where you have like these uh, military people, maybe there's a Marine, and he has his weapon in front of him, and he like takes it all apart and then puts it all back together. You ever seen that? And then you see some of these uh, films where they, they take it apart and they put it back together and they, take it, and they try to do it faster every time. And it's like take it apart, put it back, take it apart, and then they can use that weapon. They know that weapon, like, intricately. They did, they didn't know everything about it, how to use it, how to um, uh, approach it whenever it malfunctions, and how to clear that and keep going. Like, they know their weapon. We must know our weapon. Our weapon is the Word of God. We must know it. We must have it inside. When we get attacked, we can strike back. We must know our weapon. Can you imagine the difference of me going to the range with Nestor, who's in charge of our safety team here, and we go to the range. Watch me, you know, do the target practice thing. And then you have Nestor, who's been doing a lot longer, and he actually can take a weapon apart and put it back together. And can you imagine the difference between me stumbling through everything and maybe hitting the target, maybe not, and then someone who's, they know it. They're familiar with it. They're hitting it every time. That's what he's kind of getting at here is that we need to know the word. We need to be familiar with our weapon so that when we are stricken, we can strike back. Your ability to overcome Satan is directly proportionate to your knowledge of the word of God. So learn it, read it, memorize it, meditate on it. Here's a, here's a quote from J.D. Greer. He says, be so saturated with it that when life cuts you, you bleed God's word. So whenever the enemy attacks me, I'm striking back. Finally is um, be devoted to prayer. He ends with this. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication... To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me for the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. I love this. Paul's like, I need prayer too. Can you pray for me? Put me on your prayer list. Which we think sometimes, if you're super spiritual, if you really have it all together, you don't need to ask for prayer. You just pray for other people. But Paul's like, no, I need prayer. Give me some prayer, please. He's like writing scripture. Pray for me. We don't need to be ashamed to ask for prayer and to share prayer requests and to ask, Lord, would you pray? Pray for me that I'd be used by God is what he's saying. 
that I'd be bold enough to be used by God? When should we pray? He says at all times. Pray at all times. We should probably be praying probably more than we're praying. Um, how should we pray? He says pray all prayers. What kind of prayers should we pray? All of them. Just pray all of them. And he says with all perseverance. So how should we pray? With perseverance. We don't just pray and give up. It's like we're going we're gonna to persevere in this. We're going to keep going. We're going to... And then um, who should we pray for? All the saints. See it right there. We should pray all the time, all the prayers, all perseverance for all the saints. I think many of us, we, um, we pray, but it's like we pray some of the time and some of the prayers and, and for some of the saints. But um, what would it look like if we... If we did this, prayer is powerful. So I think some people take this ending and they say, okay, so the way you put on the armor of God is you pray it on. So every morning when I get up, I pray on the armor of God. I have to, Lord, would we put on the belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and and that's okay. It's okay to go through that and to get your mind set on the armor of God. But I don't think what he's saying is pray on the armor of God. I think he's saying this is where you go to battle. That, that this war that I'm telling you that you're in and you're going to have to fight is primarily fought in prayer. That, that prayer changes things in this spiritual realm that we've talked about already. Prayer tangibly changes things in this world to affect things in our world. And if we just knew the power of prayer, would we not pray all the time, all the prayers, all perseverance for all the saints? Look, in James chapter 5, he tells us the power of prayer. He says, if you're sick, get prayer from the elders of the church. But he says this in verse 16, the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of the righteous person has great power at his word. I don't feel righteous. We just talked about it. You have the imputed righteousness of God. You are righteousness because he saved you. He goes on to illustrate this. He says, Elijah was a man with our nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. And it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. What do you say here is that? Prayer is powerful. Let me tell you how powerful. Elijah, now when you think of Elijah, you think the prophet Elijah, you kind of put him up on a pedestal. Let me just tell you, he was a man just like us. Okay, so, so let's bring it down. Elisha, a man just like us, he prayed and it changed the weather. So it's like, your prayers are powerful as they are working. And this battle that you're in is fought and won in your prayer closet. Be devoted to prayer. I'm going to close with this. In Luke chapter 11, I'm not going to read it, but I'm just going to tell you about it. In Luke chapter 11, um, Jesus told this parable about a man who had an evil spirit living in his house. And um, he managed to drive it out and, and clean up his house. So think of it this way. Uh, th this guy who was... Um, uh, on drugs, he gets his life together, he gets his house and his family back together. I mean, he's cleaning things up. But during that time that he's kind of cleaning things up, 
the demon goes out and finds seven of his best friends. And he comes back, and then they all move into the house, and the state of the man's house was worse than it was at first. You ever had that happen? Like you're roommates with somebody, and then they bring like six people home? So you get out the one person, and then it, so it's worse afterwards. What Jesus says is when you drive a strong man out, in the parable in Luke 11, he uses the language of strong man. He's talking about a demon. When you drive a strong man or a demon out of your house, you need someone stronger than him to keep the man out. And the stronger man is Jesus. You can't defeat Satan and keep him out of your house by fighting him in your own strength. You need to fill your house with a stronger man. You need to cover your life with these pieces of the armor of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way we resist the devil is not to engage him, it's to get filled with the presence of Jesus, the stronger man. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. How do you get the devil out of your home, out of your head, out of your church? You preach Christ. You trust Christ. You dwell on Christ. And as a Christian, we don't have to fight for victory over Satan. We fight from victory that Jesus has already won and given us as a gift. Amen? Be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these moments we're sharing in your word. And I pray that you've written to, I thank you that you've written to us to make us alert and aware of what's actually going on, these spiritual realities. I pray that we would not ignore it or doubt it, but that we would believe it and prepare for it. I pray that we'd be dependent on you, that we would put on the arm, that we put on you on our life. That every day we'd wake up and we clothe ourselves in Jesus, in the gospel, in the Messiah, Lord. I pray that you would help us. Would you give us the strength to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might? Would you help us to fight this fight that we are in? I pray that we'd wake up to the reality of the spiritual war we are in, God. Take up the armor and fight. I pray you'd help us to be devoted to prayer. This week, today, help us, Lord. God, I pray for all the saints. I pray for the person in this room or the person watching online who they feel tangibly attacked by the enemy right now. They're wrestling with something. They're struggling to overcome something. It seems like all hell is breaking loose on their life. And that is a real reality for them. I pray that you would give them peace. 
I pray that you'd give them faith. I pray that you'd give them strength to fight. Lord, you say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I pray that as we stand firm, the devil will flee. I pray that you'd protect my brothers and sisters from these attacks. Help us, Lord. I pray that we'd walk in victory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you're going to be a part of um, the Thanksgiving box delivery, we need three families, four families, four people to help deliver these boxes. Uh, KK, wherever she is, you're going to meet with her. So you have these boxes ready. You're going to take those as you leave church and deliver them to where they go. So if you can do that, we need three or four more people to do that. You can, um, you can connect with KK right after church. I want to leave you with this blessing uh, I think, did they mention already that um, she's going to buy one or two more boxes tomorrow? If you know anybody last minute who needs a box, you let us know, and we'll try to get them one uh, tomorrow. Um, but would you help deliver those today? I want to leave you this blessing. It's at the end of Ephesians. You can stand. You can stand. And um, Paul writes, verse 23, Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. God bless you, church. You're loved. I'll see you next week.